What's up, everybody? Welcome back to What's What with Wyatt Wilkes. I am your host, Wyatt Wilkes. Today, I have Helen Pratt on the podcast. She's a two-star general in the Marine Corps, and uh, it's going to be real fun. Uh, a couple updates. Obviously, hadn't had an episode in a little while. Um, you know, can't really blame me. Uh, been been here and there. Didn't have the podcast stuff. Left Tallahassee to uh, go home and be with my parents when all this kicked off. And, um, you know, I've had people asking, and, um, you know, I really just wanted to get an episode out for you guys, and who better than... Um, you know, this great person I'm about to interview. So um, thanks for waiting around. Thanks for listening. And, uh, you know, let's get to it. Three, two, and we are live. Helen, how you doing? I'm doing great, Wyatt. Well, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, for people that don't know, um, I lived down from Miss Pratt for my entire life, I believe. Is that about right? Absolutely. All right. So um, you worked at Glen Ridge Middle School, which is where I went to middle school. Yeah. And you're the... Safe coordinator Safe now. Safe coordinator, okay. At Audubon Park Elementary, which is just a mile from here. Okay. So, oh, wow. You're doing a lot of things. And then, of course, you are a two-star general in the Marines. Right. And Marine Corps Reserves, sometimes people don't understand with the reserves how that works. And I have a civilian occupation, and um, when called to service, I go on active duty for the Marine Corps Reserves. Okay, so um, we'll get into that, but I just want to start, like, how did uh, how'd you grow up? Uh, I know you were saying before that um, your your dad was in the Marines. Um, like, how, how'd, you, how'd you grow up? How'd you get into it? Um, like, what did you, like, what was your childhood life like? So with my dad being in the Marine Corps, we moved around a lot. Every two years, three years, we would pick up and move to a new location, a new base. And I'm the youngest of five kids. So um, needless to say, it was pretty chaotic most of the time. (laughs) But um, my dad uh, served three tours in Vietnam. And while he uh, was in Vietnam, one uh, tour, we ended up moving over to Satellite Beach, which is just uh, about an hour from Orlando, and that's how I ended up in Orlando. But um, I had no desire to join the Marine Corps because my dad was a Marine. I actually was... Against it. <laughs> well, you know, he wasn't against it, or I wasn't against it. I just didn't think of that as an occupation when I was going to college. I went to UCF, and I finished with my degree in education, and I worked at the health center. I, was, I stayed on there to do my master's, and one of the gentlemen that was there was a warrant officer in the Marine Corps Reserves, and he said, have you ever thought about the Marine Corps? And I kind of chuckled and said, well, my dad was a Marine, so of course I've thought about the Marine Corps, but not for an occupation. And uh, I ended up getting a call the next day from one of the recruiters for officers, and, you know... I thought to myself, I could always be a teacher, but I couldn't always be an officer in the Marine Corps, and that was something that I wanted to do because I, I love challenges, and I, I love adventure, and I thought, you know, what a better way to kind of scratch that itch. So when you when you first started, like how – like. So they, they recruit you, they get they get you there. Like how does it start? Like day one, like what are you what are you doing every day? Like is it training? You know, obviously it's training, but like how do you like what do you start? What level are you at? So when you you start off, you're a candidate. And one of the things that they looked at for me for the Marine Corps was my physical fitness level. And when I talked to my dad about it, he said, Helen, don't join the Marine Corps because I was in the Marine Corps. He said, you need to look at all of the other services. <laughs> So at the time, I thought, you know, that's kind of interesting. But, you know, 
after being in for a little over 30 years, I, I kind of understand why he told me that. And I called all of the other services. I called the recruiters and um, the Marine Corps was the most interested in me because I was um, doing triathlons. I was a runner and it was easy for me. And mm. they have a certain um, quota that they they have to meet. So they were they were pursuing me pretty um, relentless. Uh, so is that is it like when you say quota are you talking about more like are they having quotas for officers and um, enlisted okay so just in general they just need a certain amount of people certain amount of people um female male different race um so they're they're looking at a certain quota that they have to meet and um you know i obviously met the criteria i went in i took a physical fitness test and i aced it um at the time it was a mile and a half run flex arm hang and sit-ups. Now they've changed the test over the years, but um, once I was accepted, I had to go through a process, uh, fill out an application. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I have to say, I would have never been able to join the Marine Corps if I hadn't had, not an epiphany, but when I was 20 years old, you know, I was heading down the wrong track. I was partying a lot. I was in college and I, I had to stop drinking because if I hadn't, I would never have been um, considered for the Marine Corps. I, I had some legal issues, and at the time, I didn't realize that that would have been a pivotal moment for me to actually go into the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I, I joined the Marine Corps, I, I continued to, to, to stay abstinent with, from drinking, um, and it really kind of set the stage for me to continue and to progress, um, within that organization. Um, when you start, when you started, did you have any idea that you would ascend to the level that you're at now? Absolutely not. So, was it even a dream? No. <laughs> so, you know, when I joined, I, I went in as a candidate and then you have to go to officer candidate school, which is a 10 week course in Quantico, Virginia. And it's physical, it's academic, and once you complete that 10 weeks, you get commissioned into the Marine Corps as an officer. And after that, after you're commissioned, you go to what they call the basic school, which is also in Quantico, Virginia, and you're there for six months. And you learn um, about tactics. It's also academic. It's land navigation. It's learning about different weapon systems and how to be a leader. And so during that time period, I was just looking at, you know, the initial um, requirement of four years in the Marine Corps. Um, And one of the things that some people don't realize is that less than 1% of our population join the military. And many of us that join are from parents or grandparents that were in the military. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was something that I thought I, I will do. And I... Um, did my initial three and a half years, and I left active duty after doing a tour in Desert Shield, Desert Storm over in Saudi Arabia. And so at that point, your question, did I uh, even think about staying in or having a dream of reaching um, the rank that I've um, been able to attain? And no, I, I did not think of that. I was just looking at it for that period of time. And I came back to Orlando and I had taught a year before I joined the Marine Corps. I didn't tell, tell you that in the beginning. And I thought, well, let me go back into education. And so I ended up coming back here. How many deployments have you been on? 
I was in Desert Shield, Desert Storm back in the late uh, 80s. I deployed during OIF-1, which was in 2003. I was in Kuwait and Iraq for a short period of time. I deployed again to Ira uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2005, 2006. I went back in um, 2010 and I spent a year in Afghanistan. So... So when you're when you're there, you're on on a base. Like, are you? Have you ever been in um, like you know active fire combat? Um, when I went to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, women were not allowed to be in a combat role. Um, they just opened up some of those MOSs, but at the time, I was a motor transport officer, and my primary responsibility was to deliver supplies to the front line. But because I was a female, I was not able to, to take my Marines out on a convoy. And I had trained up until that point to do that. But So at that point, what, what, what was your rank? I was a lieutenant. Okay. All right. So lieutenant, you're, you're just, you're moving goods or, you know, supplies back and forth from the base to the front line. Front lines. Okay. All right. right. And but let, let me just, I, I was not doing that at the time. I deployed over to um, Saudi Arabia, and even, even at the beginning of um, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, I was a platoon commander, and my platoon was preparing to do a, uh, an operation in Turkey. It was just training, and as soon as um, Saddam Hussein um, invaded, we were called up immediately, my unit was. But because I was a female, they had to pull me out of that role as a platoon commander, and I, I did more administrative work, mm -hmm. um, what they call an S-4, which is kind of like the logistics officer mm -hmm. for the headquarters. So I did that. I was the ammunition officer. It seems kind of counterintuitive. It does. A little bit, because, you know, you you go through tra – that's, like, uh, that's like us going through um, practice and training camp for – However long, and then right before games start, you can't the, play. The, or the, the they pull Your the coach. Your eyes are blue, and you can't play. <laughs> they pull no. the coach. Right. <laughs> that's like that, that's basically what you know what that is. Uh, that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But and you said they've started changing that now. They a have bit. Um, women uh, in the in the military now, um, and particularly in the Marine Corps, can fulfill what we call military occupational specialties. We'll, we use the acronym MOSs. They can now fill. Uh, combat MOSs, artillery, tanks. Um, so in a in a more of a like a commanding role, or is it like boots on the ground? Well, boots on the ground, and, and when you say commanding role, I always had the opportunity um, in the Marine Corps, and they allowed me to be a commander. I had a motor T unit. I was a platoon commander um, in Desert Shield, Desert or before Desert Shield, Desert Storm for a motor T unit, and then I was a company commander as a captain, because as you move up, you have more responsibilities. So I, I fulfilled roles, command roles and leadership mm -hmm. roles throughout my career. It just was not in combat. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That kind of clarifies it for me a little bit. Um, and like when we watch like uh, war movies or war shows or about like world war two, world war one, it, it, it's obviously vastly different yes. than what it is now. When you, first started were they teaching that type of warfare when you were in like when you like right off the bat like when you first got to officer school was that more like or was it more was it like more of the old school kind of fighting or was it more geared towards the new school even though it was 30 years ago well when 
you know, you look at it, who, who was the president at that time? It was Ronald Reagan and then George Bush. Um, our commandant was Al Gray, phenomenal uh, leader and, and individual. I've had an opportunity to spend time with him um, over the past couple of years as a Marine Corps University president. But, you know, the, the tactics and the strategy that were utilized at that time were based off of what we what we knew and Vietnam, and it wasn't, um, you know, a conflict where it's, you know, force on force where you're in line and, and you're charging, like in World War II or World War So v- Vietnam prepared us a little bit more for this type Jungle of... Jungle warfare, some people would yeah, call guerrilla, it that. Guerrilla warfare. So that. You know, it was vastly different um, than, you know, when you look at the... World War One, World War Two, the Korean War, Vietnam was vastly different, and Desert Shield, Desert Storm kind of um, went back to that conventional structure where you're, you know, force on force, and the tanks are in line, and you're, you're, um, uh, adversary is, you know, on the other side of a, you know, line of departure, but... Um, is that just because of terrain, or is it because of fighting force? Well, the terrain and actually the adversary that you're you're up against and what they bring to the fight. So if we, like, for instance, like, if we're fighting more of a, um, you know, stable government maybe, or a little bit stronger military, it's going to probably be more... Conventional. Conventional. Yes. Okay. All right. So then when we're fighting, you know, obviously... A, um, Urban warfare. Yeah. When you look at... You know Iraq and it's door to door. You don't know where your enemy is, and mm-hmm. or you, who or what they look like. <laughs> exactly because you've got you know the civilian population, and and one of the things that I was able to do is I was a civil affairs officer, and and what we found is that when you work with the population, sometimes you are able to gain information about your enemy um, from that civilian population at a very high risk to them. Um, once they share information about maybe one of their family members or somebody in their community. So, um, you know, we, we've altered our tactics and our strategy to what adversary we fight. Mm-hmm. Is, when you go on a deployment, do you know how long you're going to be gone? Typically, as a reservist, you know that you'll be there for seven months or, you know, when I went to Afghanistan in 2010 to 2000. 2011 to 2012, I knew I would be gone for a year. So I spent a year in Helmand Province at a place called Camp Leatherneck, which was a Marine base there in uh, Helmand Province. Okay, so when you're uh, deployed, are the Marines working with uh, the Army? Are they, like, are you all working together there? Joint force, absolutely. Joint force, okay. So it's not like... Um, and you're working with coalition forces. So you're working with the British. You've got, you know, uh, military personnel from Georgia. So from all over and even at the Afghanistans. Uh, the yeah, Afghans. The, the Afghans. They, um, I, I, I was reading something the other day that was saying that they were working pretty hard to get their, you know, force in, in a fighting shape. And we've really. been working with them for years. We've been mm-hmm. doing that for years, even in Vietnam. Uh, you know, my dad was an advisor to the Vietnamese to support them and, and train them in certain tactics, but also to supply them with equipment, weapons that they might need. And that's an agreement that's made with, with the forces. But you're working with uh, a lot of different um Joint forces, the the army, the air force, and also coalition forces. Okay, 
It's very cool. Yeah. And very interesting. You explain it a whole lot better than some, uh, some things you read sometimes. Uh, usually before I uh, do a podcast or have somebody on, I'll ask, um, you know, just people that I know or just honestly just random people and say, ask them um, what, like a question that they would want to know. And um, one of the questions that I got was, actually, I'll read it. It okay. was... Um, You're smiling, so I'm wondering it's, what's it's, coming. I, I honestly... It's... Um, have you ever been called off of an operation by the CIA? No. <laughs> Does that not happen in real life? Um, <laughs> I, I'm not aware of that, and that's not something that you know I've I've been told that. Yeah, I I have a feeling that uh, it's nothing like the movies, but you know. So how and, and, and you know my the level I I've always been you know you you look at the different levels of warfare and, and where you fall into that. And tactically, you're on the front line. You're supplying those folks. Operationally, you would be like on a battalion staff, and you would be supporting those folks. So it, it kind of moves up at different levels. And then strategically, you look out across the, the, the battlefield and, like, how are you going to get troops in from the United States into another country? Those would be strategic movements mm-hmm. that you would do. I feel like there's a, there's so many, so many more things than you, you even think of, It's you know, especially moving that much, just equipment, let alone people and personnel. Absolutely. You know, it's just when you're, how, how is that? I don't, obviously if you can't say, you can't say, but like how, how is personnel, like how is that stuff? Is that flown in and dropped? Is it, or is it flown into they a contained area? In, they ship it in. They work with coalition forces to move it through the battle space um, because, you know, you have to have certain um, authorities to move in in areas and you work with the local population, you work with the local forces to to move that. But when you're looking at a large force like the the U.S. military, you've got ships, you've got rail, you've got air, and it's it's an art, really. That's like... um, uh Keeping everything in order times a thousand. <laughs> You've got organizations that are in place, mm-hmm. and they've Everybody been in place for years. You know the, the strategic lift, strategic mobility is, you know, one of the, the Air Force and Army work very closely to ensure that the right people, the right equipment, get to the right place, and and they track everything. They track you know a, a particular piece of gear with a serial number on it. They know where it's going and who's going to get it and what individuals are moving at a specific time. And so they, they have that data. That's incredible. It's just the, the sheer scale of it is, is what's crazy to me. Um, when you're in a different country, do you like, is it, um, obviously uh, there's more technology nowadays, but do you know, like if you can call home, like, is there time for a lot for that? Like, how does that work? Like, so what's interesting that, you know, and you bring that up because when I joined the Marine Corps, we didn't have computers. We didn't have cell phones. Yeah. And it wasn't until I left active duty in um, 1992 that computers were being introduced into the military. And my first stint in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, when I was in um, Saudi Arabia, we were allowed to go and make phone calls. And they had tents set up. You know, the phone companies would come in and set up tents with 50 phone banks in them. And you would get in line and you would be able to go in and call home for like, two minutes and then they would, you know, ship you out. That's how you contacted your, your family. That's, that's insane. Or you, or you wrote letters. I know that, you know, 
that, that was really important. Mail and hearing from home was was key to the morale of everybody, um, you know, and Marines in particular. And you always worried about those that didn't hear or didn't want to call home. And as I, you know, moved forward and, and we looked at the second deployment when I was in Operation Iraqi Freedom, we did have cell phones, but they weren't um, easily accessible and you couldn't just call home. Only certain people had phones that could be utilized. Um, and they had similar phone banks or computer um, trailers that you could go in and, and send emails. But you had to wait in line, and, and uh, it wasn't like you had one on your desk or you had one in your pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, fast forward to 2011, 2012, when I was in Afghanistan, we used phones a lot, and there were phones that we could use from our desk to, to um, call home, and it was the uh, welfare morale. What was it, the term? We used a morale line where you could call a certain number and they would connect you with somebody at home. Okay, so was that was that considered a good thing or a bad thing? Um, it, it's always important for for folks to be able to to contact their loved ones and uh, people that matter to them to have that connection. Um, so yes, it was a good thing. Okay, and you you keep saying like uh, active duty and um, reserves. Like, what's the what's the major difference going so, from active duty to the reserves? So the reserve force there there are over a hundred thousand reservists in the Marine Corps. Now, when you talk about the that hundred thousand, sixty thousand or seventy thousand are on paper, and if we go into a ma- major conflict, those individuals may be called back in for their specific um, specialty. And then you have 40,000 that we call them selected marine forces, uh, selected marine reserves. And those are Marines that drill one weekend a month, and then they train in the summer, and they can be activated immediately to support any type of a conflict. I've been in the selected Marine Corps reserves my whole career so that if there's a requirement and I fit the bill, I will be asked to come on active duty. And so when you're on active duty and you have people that – stay on active duty and for, for 20 years, 30 years. They are day on, stay on, 24-7. Reservists are, you know, I hate to use the term militia, but they come in when they're needed. Mm-hmm. And when the you know, Marine Corps needs a specific um, military occupational specialty, they might look at a reserve unit that they can call in, like um, uh, intelligence personnel or motor transport Units that will, um, it's it's kind of like the uh, reserve team that will come in and support the active duty because the active duty has deployed so many times they need a break. Mm-hmm. So the reserves will will fill that gap. We we used to call ourselves shock absorbers, and you know it's interesting how the impression of reserves has changed over the years. When I was a lieutenant in Desert Shield Desert Storm, we had a reserve unit come to support us when we were in um, the northern portion of Saudi Arabia, Al-Mashab. And, you know, my senior staff NCOs and some of the officers would make disparaging comments about them, you know, kind of like the spare tires or just they didn't have a very good uh, impression of the reserves. But over the years, because they have supported so many contingencies, the impression has changed. Because you need them. You need them. them. And and they found them to be, you know, 
very proficient at their jobs. Um, they, they had, you know, uh, specialties from their civilian occupations that they brought to the fight. You know, you, you might have some folks that work in, you know, the, the cyber community right now that could come in on active duty to support that effort for the, the Marine Corps or any DOD entity that might need that specialty. So you, you found, you know, those special niches and people, like when we were building roads in al Mashab supporting the um, Afghanistan, or excuse me, in um, Marja, excuse me, we had contractors and builders from the reserves that would take the lead on that because they had that specialty or so, a, so by trade they're, they're a, uh, you know, a road builder construction worker. And because they're in the reserves, you, well, you, you just basically say, Hey, who knows how to build a road? And then you put them all right. together. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, what was interesting when I was in um, Afghanistan, we were looking at building a bridge and we needed some expertise to do that. And we had an engineer working on it, but we also had a surgeon. And the surgeon at the time was not being utilized because the clinics were saying, we don't want you to bring our military out because really we wanted to listen to what the, the locals needed from us. We didn't want to tell, come in and tell them, well, this is how we do it. Here's how you need to do it. We wanted them to tell us what they needed. So the surgeon that we had was interested in building, and he was uh, the, the go-to person for the building of the bridge. He worked with the, the local construction workers, with the cement manufacturer, and he had the the uh, materials shipped to the site to build the bridge. So we have this, this surgeon working on building a bridge that was needed. Was it, was he getting like oversight from the, like the architect or was it yes, like the engineer <laughs> the provided engineer? the oversight and okay, okay. you know, you know, it was, but it was just, he had that relationship with the people. He had the relationship. He had the desire. He felt like it was a mission that we, you know, could accomplish. And he really put forth a hundred percent and people would, would look at him and say, this guy's a, a surgeon and he's, he's focused on building a bridge, but it was what that, community needed the situation called for he stepped up exactly okay and that happens a lot with the reserves and you know the the relationship over time has um, gotten you know everybody respects one another not saying that they didn't before but they understand where the reserves are coming from and what they can bring to the fight are is there a large pay disparity between um, active duty and reserves no there's not Um, it's very fair the reserves only get paid, though, when they're drilling or they're on active duty. So right now I'm a reservist, but I'm not getting paid. I only get paid when I am drilling. And that means that I go to my headquarters and I work for the weekend. Um, and as a, a senior individual within the, the Marine Corps, I pay my way. So if I need to fly, like right now I'm the director of reserve affairs and I have an office up in Quantico, Virginia, I fly myself up there and I get a rental car that I pay for out of my pocket and the Marine Corps pays for my billeting where I stay for that time period. And I get paid oh, a certain okay, okay. amount. So, so you're basically controlling a portion of the reservists? Right. Is basically your job now. So there's a manpower and reserve affairs, and there's a director that's a three-star general, and I work for that three-star general as the reserve affairs 
director. And I oversee the policy and manpower issues for reservists. So I don't I, own them. Yeah, yeah, of course. The commander of Marine Forces Reserves in New Orleans, Lieutenant General Bellin, he manages the 40,000 Marines that are selected Marine Corps Reservists, as well as we have another um, branch. It's not a branch. It's part of the reserves. It's called Active Reserves. And there are Marines that have left active duty or they're reservists that come on active duty and they just fall under a different title, which is an active reservist. And their main priority is to work with reservists to ensure that their administration gets done. They, they follow the policies for reserves when they go on active duty. They're uh, ensuring that the training is being accomplished according to the requirements and the standards that we have set forth in the Marine Corps. And the standards that the Marine Corps has for physical fitness, the physical fitness test we take, Every, you know, we, we do it annually and we do a combat fitness test. We maintain those standards as reservists. So when I go in on a drill weekend, I have to run the physical fitness test, which is three miles. I can do pull-ups or I can do, um, uh, I think, no longer the flex arm hang, doesn't matter, and then sit-ups. They're looking at doing planks right now, just as the active duty Marines. And then we do a combat fitness test where, you know, we carry ammo cans, we throw a grenade, we carry a, a person and drag them. So you're doing that even at your rank? Even at my rank. Because if I didn't impressive. do that, what would my young Marines think? Of course, of right? course. <laughs> yeah, they got to they gotta see the, who's boss. Right. So what is it what is it like being a woman, as a especially as a, gen, a general? Because, you, you, you know, usually, like, Generals, just that name right there carries weight. So is that, is it, was it, did you find it more difficult for you because you were a woman or did you, like, what did it take really is what I'm asking. So, you know, I, I have always just seen myself as a Marine. You know, I, I didn't look at it through the lens of I'm a female, I'm different. I looked at it through the lens of I want to support and defend this nation. I'm a Marine. And I will get the job done. There are times I feel like I've had to work harder um, to prove myself because I might walk into a room and people might paint me with a, the same brush they paint all females, you know, and they might have had somebody in their unit that didn't carry the weight. Um, but I, I just feel like I, I'm there to do a job. Hold on, we got a phone ringing. All right, sorry for that little cut right there. Had a little phone ringing. I'm gonna let Miss Pratt get back to what she was saying. So, you know, you, you, um, you commented that the title general uh, bears a lot of weight, and it does. It's a huge responsibility, and I've been blessed to even have um, this chance to, to work uh, for the Marine Corps in that rank. But to me, it goes back to what's best for the organization and taking care of the Marines. The Marines are our number one priority. Um, that's what makes the Marine Corps. You can replace equipment, but you can't replace that individual Marine. And that's one of the reasons I've stayed in as long as I have. And I think that is kind of like my asthma. That directs me in my decision-making and um, where, how, how we move forward. Well, I, I, I can see how much that means to you. And it's, uh, it's pretty moving. Um, when... So how do you like move up? Like in like in, how do you move up in rank? Like how does that work? Is it like how do they how do they do they just come to you? They say hey, move up. Well, what has to happen? It's a board process. 
it's very fair. Um, they look at your package per se, and that package includes a picture of you. You have fitness reports that are done every year uh, annually, or if you do a job for a certain period of time and then you move to another billet where you have a different leader, they'll evaluate for that time period. And so there's a record and people will pull up your record on a computer and they'll see your picture. Um, you might have letters written from leaders that you've worked for or leaders that have been in the same organization that want to write a letter for you and you compete for the rank. And typically if you have had opportunities and been given opportunities in the Marine Corps to be a leader, to deploy, to um, work on a, a, you know, ship movement or something that uh, has, has not made a difference, but, um, provided the organization with, um, I'm kind of losing my thought there, but if, if, if you've done something within the organization that's noteworthy and you're recognized for, you get awards for that. So they look at your awards. They look at, you know, kind of the overall package. And there's kind of a quota, a certain number um, of folks that are promoted at a specific time. You're either below zone, end zone, or above zone. And they, they look at those three populations, and then they make the decision based on the number that can be promoted. So what does that mean, the zones? So there's a certain zone for your when you were promoted to the rank that you're at and when you're in zone to be looked at for the next, next rank. Okay. Does so, that make sense? So you're in the above zone, and you're moving up. Right. Well, if you're in the above zone, you've been looked at before. Your your package has been looked at before and you might not have been selected because there wasn't enough, you know, um, like, like places or not enough spots. Basically. Not enough spots, but there were other people that were super competitive and you might have been like, they, they were going to select 10 and you might have been number 11 and you just didn't make it because you didn't deploy as many times as the other person or you didn't, your, your, Physical fitness test was a 200 and the other people had a 300. And so those are things that are looked at by the board. And the board is selected um, by the, the comment determines who will be on those boards. And it, you can't talk about um, any of the packages uh, with anybody if you're part of that board. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's very well orchestrated by organization so at this point are is it do you retire when you want to retire at this point or no. is it like are you are you on like a quote-unquote like contract not a contract but there are certain stipulations uh throughout the marine corps as the the number of years a person can serve their age and when they have a mandatory retirement date and that's based off of how long you've been in the marine corps and and what your age will be and what your rank will be. And so with the reserves, it's interesting. There are only 12 reserve general officers in the Marine Corps. Reserves. Well, you're the highest ranking woman, right? No, no, no. Uh, in the reserves. In the reserves. There um, is a three-star general in on active duty. Uh, she's a phenomenal leader, and uh, I know a lot of folks look up to, to her. And... Um so on the, in the reserves, you're the highest-ranking female officer? Yeah, well, I, right now I'm the only female. That general. still counts. <laughs> in the reserves, yeah. That still counts. Are there any, like, five-star generals right now that are on um, active duty? Mm -mm. 
Is that is that like how how does that even work? So, um, you know, when you when you talk about the Marine Corps and you look at the the general officers, they go up to four star. Like General Dunford, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was a Marine and he phenomenal Marine. He's um, a legend, really, just like Al Gray, General Al Gray. Um, and you know, in that role um, as the chairman. I'm trying to think. I don't know if it's a five star or four star. I'd have to look that up. I apologize. I should know that. Oh no, it's okay. Is is that um, so? In what branches does it go up to five star? Uh, if it even does, I have no idea if that's even a yeah, they, they movie are, fabrication. I, I don't no. know. <laughs> it's for real. And uh, General Milley right now is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, and. For, for his rank, um, I'm pretty sure it's five star in the uh, the Secretary of the Army. But the, the Commandant of the Marine Corps is a four star. Okay, so when you're that level, are you mostly doing um, like general, like overseeing? Is it is it mostly? Are you talking to like? Is it? Is, are you talking to the president, or are you working oh, yeah. like? Well, yeah. What's your general do- job description? Well, you you, you work for the uh, Secretary of Defense, and of course the um, the president. You'll notice many of the um, sessions where the military personnel are present. You always have the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and your highest ranking general officers with them. So that's like. Uh, I keep referring to movies, but I think that's what most people, um, how they know what's, you know, how they kind of get an idea of the military. Um, so, you know, you see in a movie, you know, you, you something bad's happened, you know, and the, the president walks in, you got a bunch of people in military uniform is that that would, those people would be five-star generals. Um, or, or they're the, um, service representatives, um, the lead service representatives for each one of those services with the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff. And so um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs has his, um, his team there with each representative from every service, okay. which oh, so are four stars. Okay, okay. So then four star is like – so then what's the difference between five star and four star? So five star generals are very rare, Wyatt. I mean they have to be awarded and – there are very few cases of that, and one in particular. Uh, was, well, they don't come out like they don't. You don't just become a no, five-star. You don't no. just keep moving up the ladder and no. become. Okay, so you have to be as we given to you. It has to be given. And, it and, had to be awarded to you. And who does that? Who awards that? It would be you know that with the the president's approval and the Department of Defense, um, Secretary of Defense, um, and that would you know have to be vetted through Congress. Um, a lot of the ranks for general officers, you know, they have to be approved through the Senate, Senate approval. Once the, the president sees the list of folks that are recommended for promotion, you go through a vetting process. So it's not like just anybody um, can become a general officer. They, they have to be vetted. And with five stars, um, it's, it's very, very rare. Um, one, one particular case um, where a four-star was awarded the fifth star was Omar Bradley. And one of the main reasons was so that he would outrank MacArthur um, during the Korean war because there was some uh, bad blood between them and, and um, that was necessary for him to have that authority over the commander 
of the uh, uh, battle space. So they just needed they needed a, hi- a hierarchy. It was it, it wasn't working with co captains. Chain of command is so important. It wasn't working with co captains, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. And um, obviously, there was like Eisenhower. He was a pretty famous uh, five star yeah. general. You know, President Eisenhower and also General Eisenhower. He um, was pretty amazing if you read the history on him. And you know, he he came up through the ranks kind of differently than some of the other leaders, and he was brilliant. Um, one of the things he did um, during World War II for the Normandy invasion was, you know, he was very concerned that it might not be successful because there was a lot of moving parts. And we talked about that earlier, about how difficult it is to get people to move to certain locations at a specific time. And, you know, one of the things that he accepted is that, you know, if it failed, he would take full responsibility. And he had a letter written if Normandy wasn't as successful as it was. And that's, that's pretty amazing for him to have that foresight and the humility to say, I made this decision and I take full responsibility, whether it is successful or not successful. That's incredible. That's just to, to be willing to take, I feel like not many people would, would stand up and say, Hey, the the responsibility is all mine. Absolutely. And that's, you know, those leaders are the ones that are followed and, um, cheered by their subordinates. And, and that's the, the type of leader that you want to have is somebody that is going to put themselves in your position. And if you have to fill, the Marines have to fill sandbags, you better be out there filling them with them too, if you got the time, because they need to see that we're all in, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of the things that uh, Eisenhower demonstrated. And you have other leaders, you know, I, I don't like to, to talk poorly, but, the focus is mainly on their career and um, power and not taking care of the organization and moving um, the United States in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. And we probably haven't heard about many of those people. Well, there's a lot of history written about some of those folks. And sometimes you don't read it, you know, the way they're they're cast in certain movies. But if you look into the history of some of the, the leaders, um, they, they could have very well been toxic. And we use that terminology for a leader that um, creates an environment where people are afraid to speak. People are afraid to um, bring up issues that might be problematic because they don't want to be um, cast aside or um, be talked or fired or, you know, be moved out of the organization. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that just about does it for time. Right, and right. uh, I I'm so to, I, proud of you. I've uh, seen you <laughs> since you were a little kid, and it's amazing to sit down and talk to you about this. And it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Um, I was really excited to do this. I thought it would be extremely interesting, and it was. And uh, I, I mean, I learned something. I hope everybody else listened did. Um, so thanks for coming on, and uh, thanks for allowing Absolutely. me to sit in your living room and while your kids are outside. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, as we say in the Marine Corps, Semper Fi, which means always faithful. All right, everybody, that was uh, the latest episode of What's What with Wyatt Wilkes. Um, not many people can say they had a two-star general on their podcast. Uh, I'm, try- I'm going to try to keep putting out uh, more you know, inform- or more po- like more content for you guys. I know people are asking, and I really wanted to do it. It's just been a rough time, like I said in the intro. But uh, thanks for always supporting. Thanks for listening, and uh, have a good one, everybody.